And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. Welcome to Wednesday, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Bruce Anderson is up next. And welcome to the Wednesday episode of The Bridge, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa. I'm Peter Mansbridge in Toronto on this day and you know we got a fair number of things to talk about um over the years i think both of us have seen friends from our respective businesses uh think about going into politics some decide to in fact do that uh some win some lose some run for the liberals some run for the conservatives some run for the ndp i had a friend who ran for the parti quebecois in in quebec so we've seen uh We've seen a lot over the years in terms of... You, you hung out with separatists? <laughs> I hung out with separatists. I didn't know he was a sap till he announced he was running uh, for the people PQ. Need to know. People need to know that. Right, carry on. Very smart guy. Um, nevertheless, uh, the the issue at hand uh, centers around Wab Canoe, who last night became the first First Nations provincial premier in the country. And... Wab has had a, a number of different uh, professions in his background. He was a, he was a rap singer at one point, but he, he worked for the CBC and uh, as a reporter in in Winnipeg, uh, as a documentary filmmaker. I mean, he's an extremely talented guy in the communications end of things, uh, innovative in his style and his um, you know in his thinking. He was really really good, but he's taken. Um, the decision to uh, run for politics, and he ran for leader. He became the leader uh, at a time the conservatives were pretty well hold the, uh, hold, held power in, in Manitoba for a considerable number of years. And last night, uh, he won. And so it, it's a big moment. Uh, I mean, he has not been without controversy in his life and in and, and his uh, professions, but there he is. He's now premier of the province of Manitoba. Lots on the plate there. He got actually, you know, a, a pretty nice congratulations from the outgoing premier, uh, who's, you know, the first uh, female uh, premier of Manitoba. Uh, but the focus is on Wab Canoe, and uh, you know, good for him. Congratulations to him. There are challenges facing that province, as there are challenges facing, you know, all provinces these days. Uh, but it'll be interesting to watch how Wab does. And, you know, it was a historic moment. And so now he moves on to see what he can do in governing. Yeah, uh, I think it is an important moment. Uh, and congratulations to him. I agree with you that Heather Stephenson did um, exit gracefully, and we don't always see that. So that was nice. I think the we had a conversation about this election campaign at the beginning of it, as you recall. And and one of the reasons was that um, I think what triggered it was that they ran an ad that Wab Canoe's uh, team ran an ad on front page of the, of the newspaper, yeah. uh, the Winnipeg free press, I think it was. Exactly. And it included an endorsement by Lloyd Axworthy and the way that it was framed in this and the points that were made, I thought were an attempt to diffuse the risk of personal attack uh, against Mr. Canoe by the Conservatives. And I think uh, we talked about whether or not that was uh, a smart 
idea and i thought it was and i think it probably was it, it didn't seem like it became a campaign about him and his personal qualities it was almost like they challenged the conservatives to come at him on that stuff by taking out that ad and um from this distance it doesn't seem as though that that challenge was taken up there were other things that the conservatives did which uh, drew criticism uh, in particular, campaigning against the idea of searching landfills for uh, two missing and presumed dead um, uh, Indigenous women. Um, I don't think that it was a, a campaign that that Conservatives could be proud of. Um, and I think that as a consequence, um, it's probably a helpful thing uh, that their campaign lost, that trying those kinds of messages... Um, that seemed a little bit desperate or more than a little bit desperate towards the end of the campaign and being repudiated by voters was good. So I think it was a, you know, I think it's also a, an important signal to, to conservatives that if they feel that the tide has been moving towards conservative governments uh, because they look at the polls at the federal level and see the conservatives ahead of the liberals, um, you know, got a strong NDP government in BC We've got a majority NDP government in Manitoba now. Um, there's life in uh, in in the kind of the progressive voter uh, block uh, is a signal that I think that uh, that politicians will take out of the result in Manitoba as well. And the last point for me is that there have been uh, friction points around the rights of Indigenous people, reconciliation, and that sort of thing. And I think that. Uh, if there were some people on the right, and I don't want to suggest individual politicians or even just point to one party, who who felt like they could or should, from a uh, campaign effectiveness standpoint, run against uh, re- reconciliation, uh, that this was a signal that there's uh, uh, that there's risk in doing that. That voters um, aren't really drawn into those messages as much as might appear to be on the surface sometimes. Yeah, I don't disagree with any of that, although I still think that the underlying message, as often happens in elections um, in Canada and elsewhere, is that there's kind of a time limit on on how long a government can stay in power before people start to get anxious about yeah. you know, uh, how long they've been there and it's time for a change and all that. And, uh, you know, that played out uh, to a degree in Manitoba. Um, mm-hmm. The... Uh, you know, the Conservatives actually were well behind when the campaign started. They closed the gap somewhat, not enough to prevent an NDP majority government. Uh, it just kind of eked over the line. Basically, the the two sides flipped in, in terms of seats uh, compared with what they had the last time around. Um, but, you know, we have seen this, and it's there's no doubt it's part of the of what's going on nationally in Canada. People are saying... I've had enough of them, the Liberals, and I want to move on. Uh, and the only real option I've got, they seem to think, uh, is the Conservatives. But, um, you know, all those other factors uh, play into it as well, and there are many different factors on the on the national scale. But the time for a change theme, once it takes hold, how many times have we seen this, uh, you know, over our careers? When it, once it takes hold, man, it's hard to stop it. It is, it is hard to stop it. I think the, uh, you know, there's a, there's a question in my mind about whether or not it's evidence of, um, 
polarization. You know, when we look at um, BC and we look at Alberta, where the opposition party is the NDP uh, effectively, and we look in Manitoba now, um, centrist parties uh, might struggle in a world where polarization is happening. Centrist parties who are incumbents might uh, carry an extra burden because of the factors that you say that, you know, if you've been in power for a bit of time and things aren't going that well for people, um, it's hard not to own those problems in the minds of voters. It's hard to solve those problems because it's hard to solve those problems. Um, And when you're the incumbent government, you tend to say things that sound like it's hard to solve these problems. And if you're the opposition party, you tend to say things like, no, it's easy. We'll just elect us and we'll, we'll get at it right away and we'll solve it for you. And that's a little bit of dynamic that's going on in Ottawa right now, obviously. And, uh, uh, yeah, so I think there's a there's a lot for politicos to take from uh, the Manitoba election. Uh, I'm not sure if that's always the case with Manitoba elections in terms of the dynamic around federal politics, but I think there is a lot at this moment in time for sure. And there, there, there it's funny the Canadian people seem to to have this kind of balancing act between federal and provincial, right? You can have whichever party's in power. Uh, uh, federally, you can see over time how some of the provinces start going in the opposite direction, the people in their vote, to try and, I don't know, find a balance, if you will, in their, in, in their political masters. Um, you've seen when the conservatives were in power in Ottawa that there were a lot of liberal provincial governments eventually. We've seen a bit of the reverse uh, over the last eight years, a lot of the provinces went conservative with the Liberals uh, in mm-hmm. power in Ottawa. Um, this has been an interesting development because it breaks up. It breaks up that sort of three prairie provinces, if you include Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, that were you know, all conservative. It, it puts a dent in that. And the, that, was a, uh, you know, that was a power block against Ottawa. Uh, those three conservative governments. So that that's a little, that's a little bit less now. It uh, felt like it, uh, but I, I think there's actually two things that happen uh, at the same time. Sometimes one is that when, is I, I don't know how often it is the case that there's enough friction between the two levels of government that people say, well, these guys are getting a little too strong, and these folks need to be a little bit more prominent and in and have a little bit more muscularity in the conversation. So I'm going to vote strategically that way. Uh, you know, I there have been times when there's constitutional issues or there's friction around other issues where that is, you know, pretty obviously the case, and it's, you know, it is consistently the case in uh in alberta for example and and i guess to a considerable degree in saskatchewan as well but it, it may also be just that when uh when a progressive party wins a big election uh, or when a conservative party wins a big election that party in office in the early going tends to be so um full of piss and vinegar uh I don't know if that's a if that's an accepted term on the bridge, but it's uh, it's not profane. It's just no. like they have so much energy, right? They're way out over front of their skis, and they're they're excited about the opportunity and want everybody to pay attention to it. 
that feels right for your own partisans. And it probably is the right thing to do to have enough forward momentum on your agenda that it sticks. But at the same time, it starts the process of having people say, well, wait, we didn't want that much of that. We wanted some of that, right? And then there can be this recoil that happens over time where people say, well, you know, they got a little bit too into uh, some of their own rhetoric, some of their own ideas. They misunderstood how enthusiastic we were for some aspects of their agenda. And I think that maybe more than anything else kind of eats into it. And then the other factor is that if you have a party that's been out of office for two or three elections and it has any skill set at all, it's going to get better. Is The competition aspect is going to kick in. If I look at the federal conservatives, I think that um, competition with the liberals has made them a more effective opposition party. It took them a couple of, you know, a, a number of years for that improvement to really take hold. But I think that's part of what happens is that the parties get tired of losing. They get tired of trying the wrong things to get out of losing. And then they start to get a little closer to the right things. And yesterday in the House of Commons was a good example for me. And I don't know if you want to move off the Manitoba election now. But um, there was uh, Pierre Polyev standing up talking about the price, the, 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 the fact that a turkey costs $120 now. Now, I checked into that price today and I didn't I saw one place offering a turkey at $120. I don't know if that's more broad, but the reason I checked into it was it did sound to me like the piece of political communication that if you were the conservatives, you would have wanted to have landed this week, yesterday, and have people talk about it today and tomorrow. It's very hard for incumbents to answer the question, why is a turkey $120 when three weeks ago you said, we're going to stabilize food prices, we're going to bully pulpit the grocery retailers, and if they don't do it, if they don't do what they should do, we're going to take care of that. So for me, that's an example of how the conservatives have learned through a trial and error over a couple of elections how to get closer to the mark in terms of what it is that will motivate people. They're not talking about meeting the 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 small fringy convoy people who are assembling now. They're not talking about a lot of those issues that were base rallying before very often. Uh, and I'm not trying to give them a clean bill of health here. I, I'm just saying when they stand up in the House of Commons and say $120 a turkey, that's to some degree, a function of what happens when competition works its way through our political system and an opposition party that's tired of being in opposition gets better at what it's doing. Agreed? Yeah. Yeah, I do. But I'm still trying to get over the $120 for a turkey. And you found one where it was 120 bucks for a turkey? Like, that no, must have been a very fine. big turkey. No, a 20-pound turkey at $6 a pound. Now, the place that I checked might have been a little bit um, like special turkey. I don't know. Uh, but I <laughs> I didn't have a chance to go to the Costco site yet. Um, I mean, that's a, that is that does make you sit up and sort of ignore everything else that you see on the front of your paper. <laughs> you yeah, no, it does, right? It does. And, uh, I think last week... Um, Polyev was talking about the price of uh, of lettuce. And uh, is that meeting with the 
How long before the meeting with the grocery retail executives will it be <clears throat> before the price of lettuce comes down? I think that this is an important signal for the government that uh, when their answer sounds too much like um, we will always have people's backs and the other guys are saying $120 a turkey, if you were a fight judge and you were scoring that fight, that would be easy, right? Every single point goes to the conservatives if that's the nature of the debate. Um, and so competition needs to work its effect on the liberals right now at the federal level. They need to take the lessons from the beating that they're taking every day in the House of Commons and get better uh, at how they're communicating and what they've got to say. And they've also, I'm not always in favor of, you know, pugilistic politics, but they've got to fight back. Um, they've got to be more interested in raising doubts about the truth uh, the truthfulness of their principal opponent. And there are reasons for doubts uh, about its truthfulness. Um, but right now, it doesn't look like competition is having that effect on the Liberals yet. You know, it, politicians have got to be ready for so many things, right? Once uh, when, when they put their name forward, they put their face forward, they get out there in a campaign, um, this price of whatever it may be, is something that historically has been an issue for some politicians who are sort of, in a way like me, if, if it's really 120 bucks for a 20 pound turkey, that's a, a shock to me. But I, you know, I can remember times as I'm sure you can, I, I think of George Bush Sr., think of Pierre Trudeau, when challenged by a reporter during a campaign, um, and this is one example, I think it was the Bush Sr. one. Price of milk, yeah. Price of milk. He hadn't a clue what the price of milk was. And, you know, perhaps there was good reason he didn't know what it was. But to the average voter, it looked like this guy doesn't get it, what we're going through. Uh, yeah, same thing happened at Trudeau. I can't remember what it was, something to do with how much money he had in his pocket or something. And he had none because everybody else paid for everything for him. Yeah, yeah, that's Pierre right. Trudeau. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, there were stories, remember, that he was kind of notoriously cheap, that he deliberately didn't have money, even though he might have, you know, put some in his pocket in the morning, but he didn't want to pay for anything. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. You were a journalist uh, covering <laughs> politics in those days. Um, it's, what like, are you it's like you on the golf course, you know, when you get to that big putt and make a small wager and then, oh, well, I don't have any money with me. Just put it on my add to my tab. We have 25 years of those debts that have piled <laughs> up. I'm going to outrun them. I think that's the plan. Okay, we're going to um, we're going to take a, a quick break, and I I want to move the topic uh, to something else, um, which we will do uh, when we're uh, when we come back. And welcome back. You're listening to the Wednesday episode of The Bridge at Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa. I'm Peter Mansbridge in Toronto. Glad to have you with us. You're listening on Sirius XM Channel 167 or on your favorite podcast platform or you're watching us on our uh, YouTube channel where the numbers just keep skyrocketing. And so do the comments. <laughs> Some of them are actually readable. Um. Are you getting a little bruised by, uh, uh, by this whatever, commentary? You know, 
you just have to keep reminding yourself that amongst the really constructive comments, there's the odd, you know, bot or something that's planted by some disinformation specialists and and just whiners and moaners. Um, but quite frankly, I, I'm still amazed. It's more so on our, you know, on our uh, main written-in email uh, comments where you get really good, thoughtful, constructive stuff. Some of it's, you know, positive, some of it's negative, but it all has a, you know, a, a constructive nature to it. I've had a week uh, just in the last week where I've been in a lot of different meetings and settings with different people in and around politics. And I am struck by how much uh, people have said that, uh, and it's not to toot our, our horn here, but um, oh, they appreciate go the on. conversation. They to, appreciate to the it. fact to that it. you have good guests. That's what they say to me. They, <laughs> Especially they, on Wednesdays, they, right? They really like the guests I have on Wednesday. They like the guests. Um, Okay, before I ask you a question, a couple of things. You know, one of the things that we like to do on this program is when we're wrong, admit it. And occasionally I do give those admissions. Um, The other day, it might have even been yesterday. I I did like the use of the word we in that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, go ahead. yesterday, Yesterday I said, I think it was yesterday, I said, Donald Trump's being convicted of fraud. Now, it kind of flip, slips into, you know, a theme that I've had for more than a couple of years, that he is a fraud. He's just a straight-out fraud and a liar and everything else. Uh, but convicted of fraud was wrong, and I was wrong in saying that, because he wasn't convicted of fraud. He was found liable of fraud, in a civil case, as opposed to a criminal case, where if that had happened, he would have been convicted of Mm. fraud. But it wasn't a criminal case, it was a civil case. So the correct terminology is he's found liable of fraud, and that's in in some degree what's going on in New York courthouse now is trying to determine what that liability is. So that's one correction. Um, The other correction, a week ago, and it may have been on smoke, um, and I may have been victim to a disinformation campaign. I can't remember where I saw it. I saw it somewhere on social media. Uh, we were talking about a, you know, a late night emergency kind of uh, meeting by the Liberal Caucus, and I said, really, you know, we don't really know what's going on in there, and we didn't at that time. But I did say that uh, the Prime Minister wasn't there, and what did that say about the relationship he had with the caucus? Um, well, it turns out he was there, at least according to the most senior uh, people in his office, uh, that in fact he was there and what that caucus was about was the speaker process, the election of a new speaker. So um, I put that forward. And, and as a warning to, you know, <laughs> how many times have I given it to you? I wasn't going with it myself of getting suckered in by something that was on social media, Right. Um, and uh, I didn't look to uh, confirm it. So I'll do that in the future. But it's, you know, it's one of the reasons I ignore all those things that are said about you. I know they're not true. Well, we should really talk a little bit more about the mistakes that you made this week, these two in particular, and how it makes you feel like when you make that mistake and you, you say dwell on it every day. And, um, it makes, it you makes sleep me... sleep at night because of these, like... It, I don't know that I could. 
No, good for you, Peter, for for saying that. I I'm sure that yeah, we look both look at this have... headline. Look at this headline. Those of you who are watching on our YouTube channel will see that the Wall Street Journal issues a correction for an article published in 1963. Well, you see, you're faster than that. Yes, I was much quicker on the mark. They misquoted uh, John King, or sorry, John Lewis. Uh, Martin Luther King's uh, friend and fellow civil rights leader in the U.S. They misquoted him from a speech he gave. And all these years later, after his passing, in fact, they um, they corrected that. Well, thank you for your media culpa, Peter. It's good for you to do that. It I'll, is I'll good. I'll remember if I make a mistake, I'll try and do that too. Here's, uh, here's what I want to ask you about. You know, we always like to be feel like we're competitive with the Americans on any number of different levels. It's it's often hockey or soccer or baseball, but you know we've been kind of ahead on some of the key issues of the day. And just in the last week, I mean, we dumped our speaker a week ago. They only dumped their speaker this week. Well, we elected a new speaker this week. It's going to be next week at the earliest before they elect their speaker. Now, speakers in Canada and speakers in the United States are two very different things. Uh, there's, you know, the speaker in the U.S. is third in line to the presidency after the president and the vice president. Speaker in Canada is, well, they get a nice place in the Gatineau Hills. And they have some... Responsibilities. Pardon me? They have an apartment in center block. That's right. Apartment in center block. Whiskey with their name on it. Oh, I didn't know that. The thing. Um, But in terms of real power, they don't have that kind of power as the speaker in the States. But there's been such a focus on these two stories, very different stories, very, very different issues at stake. But there's been such a focus by the media in both countries that it does leave the, the question, how important are these positions anyway? Like, should there be this kind of overwhelming focus on the part of the media, or is this another example of where the real people out there, the voters, concerned Canadians or Americans, who have so many other things on their mind, are saying, what the hell? This is not what is consuming my time at home yeah. or my work. Well, look, in Canada, I think there was a focus on the speaker briefly because of the uh, events with the the visitor in the gallery of the House of Commons. I don't think otherwise there would have been that focus on, on the selection of a new speaker. There wouldn't have been the selection of a new speaker, but it didn't really take that much time, and it wasn't that controversial. And in the end, the... Um, the house picked a uh, a popular, likable guy with a you know a good amount of experience. Greg Fergus, the first um, black person to serve in that role, um, and you know the, as he assumed the position yesterday, I, I remember I was looking at him as he kind of opened up question period, and he had a funny line. He said, um, "He said I just like to remind members that this is kind of like uh, the first day when you have a new car." Don't dent it on the first day, if you don't mind. Uh, it was a it was a moment of lightness, um, 
And then everybody kind of got on with their business. Um, they had that ritual of the two uh, principal party leaders kind of appearing to drag him up the uh, the center aisle of the House of Commons to take his seat, to, uh, which is uh, meant to show that um, he was reluctant to, like this is a tradition, uh, that he was reluctant to, to take on that role. Um, but it was a pretty orderly process, and I don't think that people will really be talking about the change of a speaker particularly in Canada beyond yesterday, uh, in the United States, as you suggested, is a very different role. And it warranted a great deal of media attention, I think. You, you could argue that on the cable news channels, the coverage goes on and on and on and on and on. And I think that's true. And I think it's true because they've got these panels assembled and they need to sell advertising. And so the more hours that they can create where people are tuned in, waiting for some moment in the unfolding drama... It's a good it's it's good for their business model. However, um, the saga of Kevin McCarthy was a really interesting one. How many days do you remember, Peter, how many days it took for him to be selected? Uh, but it went on and on and on. They had endless ballots and he wasn't able to kind of get over the line because his own conference, his own caucus of Republicans was not really into him. Um even though he had been the heir apparent in that role for a good long period of time. And here he is today. Uh, I saw by one account, he, he was in that role for 27 Scaramucci's. Do you remember that reference to 27 <laughs> Scaramucci's? The, yeah. the guy, the was... unlamented uh, director of communications yeah, for the, right. uh, for president Trump. Right. But American politics is so chaotic. I think this is the big picture coming out right now. And what's really important is not so much McCarthy. It's the chaos in American Republican politics. And the I was going to say that capper on the chaos story, but we don't know what the capper is in two hours. It might be even more bizarre is that there are some Texas Republicans who are going to nominate Donald Trump to be Speaker of the House. And I saw, you know, Jim Jordan saying, look, if he wants to, he's a, he's a prominent Republican whose name has been uh, tossed around as the potential successor to Kevin McCarthy, 27 Scaramucci McCarthy. Jim Jordan said, look, if Trump wants to, I want him to be president, he said, but if he wants to be Speaker, that's okay with me. Now, I... Maybe okay with him, but it's not okay with the law. You can't be indicted and have a position of some relevance in the U.S. Congress. Well, I'm glad you said that, and I hope you don't have to correct yourself on this one because uh, <laughs> it made me a little worried at 6.30 in the morning when I read about this because I thought, I don't understand. Are there no guard rules in American politics anymore? Uh, because it does feel some days like um, uh, it's just Trump's country. Uh, for too many people and too many politicians. And uh, I find that bizarre to watch him harumphing in this courtroom, uh, posting uh, things about the judge who's sitting, presiding over his case about her clerk, um, so that the judge has to say, you're coming into my chambers at lunch and put a gag order on him. And, and he took his post down. And one had to imagine that that was maybe the closest that he has come yet to incarceration. Uh, I rather suspect that that the sanction against him, if he had not taken that post down, was going to be so significant that 
he took the post out. I'm sure he didn't want to do it. Anyway, that's might, a little might, bit of a ramble, but yeah, um, it might be uh, give a little spine to some of the other judges on some of the other charges against him um, in terms of gag orders. Although this one sounds good, he's had a gag order, but it doesn't really change too much of how he is likely to act. I mean, watching him this week, I, I mean, I, you know, it's like he's on a television show. He's so acting. You know, tough-looking face on him sitting in the, you know, in the uh, at, at his chair at the at the, uh, the prisoner's dock. I don't think Pris- it's a prisoner's, prisoner's dock, dock in a civil trial, maybe, no. but it, it felt like it. You know, people yeah. get mad when I say we should do. We should look at least learn from some of the British stuff. When you see in a British courtroom, the the defendant is all alone in a little box. <laughs> Over, I watched Witness the for the Prosecution the other day. Yeah. You know, that old movie, uh, black and white film, great, great film. Yeah. Anyway, lots of scenes in Old Bailey yeah. with the doc. Highly recommend. Um, I, I just want to, for a second, go back because it made me smile thinking about it. Um, when you talked about day one, first dent on a car. Remember our old friend Mike Robinson, who's is gone now, sadly. Yes. Uh, yeah. Mike's dream had always been, as he was growing up and in his his uh, early adulthood and, and his later adulthood, he wanted a Land Rover. I got to have a Land Rover. I really want a Land Rover. And finally, he got his first Land Rover, and he drove it off the lot. He got home. They were living in a. I think they were living in a condo at the time, whatever it was. It was an underground parking garage. <laughs> he, he, he drove into the underground parking garage, but he he they, hadn't realized the height restriction. They're very high. Those, yeah. yeah. And wham. And that was the end of <laughs> that was the end of that particular Land Rover on day one. Um okay, just another thought on the on the speaker. Uh, you talked about Greg Fergus, the new uh, Speaker of the House of Commons. First black Canadian to be elected to that uh, role. We uh, wish him luck. It's going to be challenging, especially out of the gate, and especially so given the the current temperature in that place. And I don't mean the actual temperature. I mean the temperature of the caused by the polarization and the, the back and forth that goes on in there. Um you like Alex Bellingall from the Ottawa uh, Bureau of, uh, what is he? The Toronto, uh, is he still with the Star? I think Star, yeah. Right. Um, he had a piece this week, and the headline is, Rude, Disrespectful, and Unruly. MPs say the House of Commons has turned into a circus, and someone needs to tame it. Now, we've heard this criticism before, right, about... Uh, what happens in the House of Commons, and you know, every talk, year, every year, we talked years. about it a couple of weeks ago. And as I was saying earlier, I get slammed when I say, "You know, there are lessons to be learned from other places." And I usually point out the British House of Commons. And at that particular point, I was just talking about the way politicians speak and their ability to speak. Um, and I got, you know, I got a, a number of emails saying, "Man." We don't need to learn anything from the British. We've had enough of that in our lifetimes. Um, and I sort of, you know, I hear you on that. But nevertheless, 
This is a, you should read this article, and uh, Bruce is right, it's in the Toronto Star, a couple of days ago, October 2nd. And he goes through the situation in the House, how bad it is, how bad many of the MPs think it is, uh, that it's gone, you know, it's gone too far in the unruly nature of the place. And... uh, so this this lumps into what Greg Fergus is going to have to deal with, and how he deals with it. And I'm not sure what, quite frankly, I'm not sure what the answer is because it has turned into a bit of a sideshow. Uh, watching occasionally, there are moments of brilliance on on all sides, but man, it doesn't happen often. What's the advice? Uh, what's the advice you give, Glenn? Uh, Greg Fergus. Well, I, I think it has gotten quite a bit worse. Um, I think it's a reflection of the times that we live in, in terms of the polarization, but also just the way that social media in particular has has changed the way that people exchange ideas, um, and not for the better. Uh, there's some for the better. Obviously, people are sharing thoughtful observations sometimes on social media, but also they they tend to be using language when they disagree with somebody that um, is more disrespectful than they would do in person in years past. And some of that has um, made its way into how the House of Commons works. Uh, There's a lot of howling. There's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of heckling. There's a lot of, um, there's more of that kind of constant noise intended to disrupt um, one side or the other, um, as a natural fact. And I do think that the speaker has some role to play in in trying to tamp that down. And, uh, but it will take a good deal of strenuous effort over a sustained period of time to change that. I think it's effort worth putting in. I hope Greg does it. Uh, the, but the second thing is that when there are, and there always have been, MPs who deliberately cross the line into unparliamentary language. Um, That's the term used to describe the things that you're really not supposed to say about your opponent in the House of Commons. Um, In order, I mean, people sometimes don't know why these rules exist, uh, but in order to maintain uh, the idea that you can have a conversation in the Commons rather than it's just people hollering insults at one another, and last week, there was a, an example of that, where uh, a conservative MP uh, called a liberal minister, uh, Karina Gould, the, the conservative MP was um, Melissa Lansman, uh, said she was a disgrace. She said that uh, Karina Gould was a disgrace. And the liberals rose on a uh, point of order, which is how you sort of address something that you think is unparliamentary that was said address the question to the person who is sitting in the speaker's chair, a conservative MP named Chris Dontremont, and um, said, you know, this term that was used by one MP to describe another was unparliamentary and required an apology and a retraction. The conservative speaker who was in the chair at that time, a a well-liked individual, Chris Dontremont, said, well, I'll have to I'll have to look at the tape and 
and then come to a decision about that. And as soon as he said that, Melissa Lansman stood up again and said it again. And there was no sanction, as far as I could tell. Um, so he's saying, I'm going to look at the tape. And she as much as said, you don't have to look at the tape. I'm going to say it again, um, because I believe this to be true. Well, believing it to be true isn't um, isn't a legitimate response to, is it unparliamentary language? You can say it outside the House of Commons. You can write it in a newspaper uh, article if you want. You can do it in an interview. You can say what you want to say. Um, now, sometimes people will, in, in the House, MPs will use language to be really critical of somebody on the other side that they wouldn't use outside the House because you can't be sued for what you say in the House of Commons. But this wasn't really that. This was saying not the choice that the government made. In, in this case, it was really about the, the proposal to erase the record from Hansard of the House applauding the uh, the attendance in the House, uh, in the gallery of, of that Nazi. Um, she could have said that that was a disgraceful choice. Um, and I don't think that would have been unparliamentary. I'm not an expert in that, but I think that would have been okay. But to say that the other MP is a disgrace is unparliamentary language. And I thought, that, well, that's an, going to be an interesting test because if if more MPs are going to test the ability or the willingness of the speaker to come down hard against that kind of language, to protect the idea of parliamentary language, um, then it'll be an interesting session. I don't know whether that'll be the case, but, um, you know, Ballingale's article suggests that uh, we've reached a new level of vitriol, and I think he's he's tr he, he's on to something there. Yeah, well, it certainly does suggest that. It, you know, I guess the, the image that one would like to be left with to a degree, and I think that that degree is an important to define and each person will define it themselves. But there was an image of the, after the election of the speaker, when the speaker was kind of dragged into the house, which is the custom. And it, it, the new speaker is dragged in by the prime minister and the leader of the opposition. And it just looked like, you know, kind of good fun, a degree of camaraderie, you know, it was it was nice to see. Um, now, trying to find the line between that and what we've witnessed in the House uh, of late, including by those two, who always uh, often I'm talking about Trudeau and Polyev, often at times look like they're you know rehearsing for a, a campaign ad, and the way they go at each other. Um, but I, I, I couldn't help but look at that picture and say, like, where is the line in between that? Where you know that you know, these two guys don't like each other, but you don't have to like each other to have a degree of respect for the roles you play. It just doesn't seem at any time other than in that moment they have that. Does that matter? Yeah, you know, I, look, I, I watched some of the... Um, the house in the last couple of weeks, because I really wanted to see how Trudeau and Polyev would do with each other. And there are many, there were many parts of it where I thought, you know, it's rough, but um, it's within the bounds of what should happen in our, in our house. Polyev yesterday talking about 
$120 turkey and you promised and what are you going to do? The countdown is several days to Thanksgiving. To me, that's all legitimate opposition politics. That's kind of what the role should be. And there wasn't really much in that language that he used that I would say was kind of outside the bounds of anything that we've ever heard. Um, but then there are other moments where um, you really see that there are different value systems. And I think that's where the politicians are more uh, sharply divided uh, than they have been in the past. The polarization that we see, the culture war kind of influences on it, because there's no question that a, a good number of liberals on any given day will hear Pierre Polyev or some of his um, his caucus say things that they think are completely untrue, are misrepresentations of the fact. Um, of the facts, uh, the characterization, for example, of the um, uh, of the government's bill on uh, online um, is a case in point um, where uh, Polyev is calling it censorship. It's not. It's not really censorship. Um, and there's a so what I find is that on things where one side thinks the other side is lying. Uh, purposefully over and over again and uh, needs to be called on it, tempers run pretty hot about that stuff. Um, and and that's understandable. Uh, and on the conservative side, there's a lot of people who just uh, really, more than anything else, probably just dislike liberals. They dislike everything that the Liberal Party has stood for. And they kind of can't keep that out of their... Uh, uh, out of their talking points or out of the way in which they approach politics. So, you know, some of those tensions do run pretty deep. Um, I don't know what the rest of this session is going to look like, but it wouldn't surprise me if it didn't turn out to be one of the hardest hitting, most uh, fractious uh, that I've ever seen. And we only have two more years to go if they stretch it to the limit. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> they'll, yeah. be, they'll be putting the boxing gloves on by the time they get in there by then. Or not. We'll see what uh, the new speaker has to uh, has to say about all that. All right, listen, we're uh, we've had a good conversation, and it's nice to hear all your apologies for things you've said in the past. And yeah, yeah. I'm glad uh, you, I'm glad you got them off your chest. Well, I feel badly for you losing all that sleep about the errors, the grievous errors that you've made. But you know what? Repentance is good, Peter. Way to go. It is good. I feel better. I feel better already. We can just make it a regular part of the Wednesday conversation. You can take a few minutes off the top and apologize for whatever else you got wrong. And I'll... I'll consider that. We'll have to come up with a name for that section, though. Which I'm sure we'll do, or you'll do. The grovel. Let's start it with (laughs) the the grovel grovel every Wednesday. Okay. All right. All right, my friend. Thank you for this. We'll see you on on Friday. Good talk with Chantel. Uh, Until such time, take care. And for you out there, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. 